Last week, Rob introduced this new series we're in. We call it The Word of God, Written, Living, Active. If you missed it, I cannot encourage you enough to go back, get it on the website, listen to it. Uh, It is an introductory message, even as this message is today and the one Michael will do next week. It's an introduction to the whole series and the series will build upon these things and so we wanna encourage you to stay current on those messages. Uh, The second reason I'd encourage you to go hear it is because it was so good. I'm not just saying that, it was so good. And I uh, listened to it myself this week in preparation for being here. And uh, Rob said something. You know, I gave the same message at Fellowship Brentwood. Of course, we do it our own way, so to speak. But um, Rob said some things that I made note of literally to say, I will say this because Fellowship Brentwood needs to hear uh, these words. It is in God's remarkable kindness, as Eric just said. I had this in my notes because I wanted to say it just hearing Rob and always watching Eric over the years that he has connected these two men to complement one another and lead Fellowship Franklin. I mean, I don't, I hope we don't take that uh, for granted. Well, we started the series by asking you the question, how do many people see the Bible? Rob asked this question. You know, how do people view it? You know, people come to it. How do they, how do they interact with it when they come to it? And uh, he described it in this way, you know, it could be an a, a encyclopedia, you know, you come to it and uh, it's really, it's got some real good truth in it, but you know, depending, you know, I'm gonna find the old world book, it's a 1978 edition and we would look at it and go, you know, there's some truth in it, but my goodness, we know so much more now. It's really, you know, doesn't have, you know, it's actually wrong in places. And some people actually come to the Bible like that, don't they? They come and go, you know, it's, it's, yes, it's amazing. It's got a lot of truth, but... I mean, we know so much more today. You know, it's, it's outdated. Or he mentioned coming to it as a, as a car manual. And I used the same uh, illustration at Brentwood. And I was driving to work last Saturday with my 13-year-old daughter. And, and she said, what are you doing with all these books in here? And I said, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to act like, how do people come to see the Bible? And, and I'm going to say, you know, some people see it as a car manual. She said, she goes, that's really good because you never look at, you never look at the car manual. And, <laughs> and I said, I told everybody, I said, look, she meant you universal, you know, you don't, you know, you got a flat tire, where's the jack in this thing? I have no idea, and you pull it out. Well, when you look at, you know, we can have a stack of books. We go to the ceiling with books. The bottom line is that whether you see it as a car manual, encyclopedia, tax code, uh, fairy tale book, uh, they are all incomplete. All of them hold, quite frankly, some truth. You know, there's some truth in them, but they don't hold the whole truth. And when we put them all together, they fail to give us a proper view of the Bible. Come to the Bible as an encyclopedia. Come to the Bible as an owner's manual. I need it today, you know, I'm gonna... And it will not, as Rob said, satisfy the deepest longings and thirsts of our soul. They cannot. Now, while we could have chosen a number of images to, to, to keep in front of us through the series as to how the word of God describes itself... We chose this image of a pitcher of pure, refreshing water. Now, why would he choose this? The Bible is going to describe it this way because water is the essence of life. I mean, you guys do know, we all agree that, you know, at the molecular level, even in our bodies, everything that keeps us alive requires what? 
What? It does, we know that's a fact. I mean, people looking for life on other planets, what are they always looking for when they land on the planet? They land the lunar module. Hey, is there any sign that there was ever water on this place? Because if there's no water, there's no life. And it's absolutely true that if there is no word in your life, there's no life. Why is that true? Well, Rob said last week, he mentioned something. He said, if you write down anything, write down this one statement. I'll repeat it to you. He said, the word of God is inseparable from the presence of God and the work of God. I'll say it again. The word of God is inseparable from the very presence of God and the work of God. We're gonna come back to that over and over through this series. It's through this word written, you see, that we come to experience the very presence and work of God in us. These, these words are like, it's like, you know, you know, there's radioactive treatments now. You know, they put a radioactive pill in someone, that the, 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 the module goes in you and it's inside and the radioactivity is like, you know, it's affecting cells in your body. This is, this is true of the word of God. When you put the word of God in your mind, in your heart, you see it's at work from the inside out, the writer of Hebrews said it this way, it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. How do you pierce that deep? Both joins and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, Hebrews 4.12. I've got one more statement I'd like you to consider writing down, at least put it in your mind. Uh, and again, we'll come back to it because it is foundational to all that we cover in the series. I'll say it like this. Any view of the Bible that is less than the view that the Bible has of itself is inadequate. Any, any view of the Bible that is less than the Bible's view of itself is inadequate. Think about that for a moment. Sometimes we say it like this, and we're suggesting this, what the Bible says about itself is the truest, most accurate, authoritative statement that can be said about the Bible. Sometimes we say it like this. The Bible is the word of God because the Bible says it's the word of God. Now, if you're tracking with me at all, you maybe have something going off in your mind. You think of someone who said this, or you might say it. You go, wait, 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 wait a minute. That is a circular argument. And have you not had, you know, maybe you haven't had this, but skeptics of, of the scripture will throw that out and say, you can't, that's just a circle. You can't say the Bible, you can't validate the Bible by the Bible. That's a circular argument. This is not a series on apologetics. We're not going to spend time defending the Bible per se. We're going to look at what the Bible says about itself. But I want to make a, make a note on this idea of a circular argument, if I can, for a moment. And the first thing I want you to understand is when someone says that's a circular argument, you say, and? You know, because it is. It, it, there's no denying it. There's no sense in going, no, no, it's not a circular. No, it is a circular argument. But think about it. It's a circular argument for good reason. <laughs> it's consistent. It's a logical argument. When you and I, and this is not just, you know, Christians taking the Bible, 
the truth is, it's a circular, re, circular reasoning is necessary for anyone who's arguing for ultimate authority. And we are. Please understand, when I say this is, this is our ultimate authority in life, I believe it. But anyone arguing for some other ultimate authority must appeal to the ultimate authority <laughs> because to appeal to anything other than that, oh, it's, you're gonna appeal to this to say that's the ultimate authority is to appeal to something lesser. Am I making sense? You can't appeal to something less than ultimate authority <laughs> and still say that's the ultimate authority. That makes no sense, right? So yes, there's a sense of circular reasoning when we say this, but it's no different than Honestly, all, you know, a scientist that says, you know, that science is the ultimate authority because I can prove it by science. That science is the ultimate authority. The existentialist, there, you know, that self is the ultimate authority because I can, I know it in myself. <laughs> you always have to go there. And so we make absolutely no apology that we're starting with the Bible to evaluate the Bible because to evaluate it by anything less is to make less, you see, of the Bible. Are you with me? Kevin DeYoung, in his excellent book, I encourage you if you want to do some readings, called, uh, he wrote a book called um, Taking God at His Word, and I actually used it to outline our series. So uh, the way he thought through his book on the nature of God's Word. And he takes Stephen Covey's cue, and he begins with the end in mind. I mean by that, he, he, he starts the beginning of the book with the conclusion. This is what we want to see at the end. And I want us to do that as well in this introductory message. I want to literally take you out in your mind's eye to March 8th, out this way. I want you to go eight weeks into the future. It's March 8th, 2015. Uh, we have just gone through a 10-week series on the Word of God. Rob's actually teaching that day and he's reviewing everything we've learned. And I want you to imagine someone who, if someone is now coming to the word of God and sees the word of God as the word sees itself, how might they be different? How might some of us be standing out here eight weeks now? What, what, what might we be thinking, feeling, doing? I mean, can you imagine what that person, what, what might be going on? What might have changed and shifted in that person's mind, their, their emotional world, and even their choices in life? We don't, we don't have to imagine that at all because we have a definitive description of a person who has come to see God's word as God's word sees itself. I want you to take your Bibles, if you have them, and open to the very middle, to Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter in our Bibles. Psalm 119. It's a poem, y'all. It's a lyric. It's a song. And we get to see, okay, we're, we're, we're out on the conclusion now, going, you know, here's what we hope happens in us. We get to see what happens in a person's, I'll put it this way, what happens in their head, their heart, and their hands, having come to see God's word as the word sees itself? Psalm 119 is 176 verses long. It's comprised of 22 stanzas. Each stanza has eight lines, eight uh, verses. Uh, it, is a, it is an acrostic. 
And so the writer has taken the Hebrew alphabet, 22 characters, and he begins each of those stanzas, every line in each stanza begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So the first stanza is, you know, let's use, if it was English, if it was English, how many stanzas would we have? 26. And the first eight lines would begin all with the letter, the letter what? A. And the next eight lines would begin with the letter this is Hebrew now, but it's 22 Hebrew letters and it's the same way it goes all through it. And see, it aids them in memorization. And yes, they memorized Psalm 119. In all but maybe three verses, the word of God is mentioned. Uh, there is no part of scripture where the Bible speaks about the Bible as concentrated and as comprehensive a way. Uh, the writer uses at least eight primary words to describe God's revelation. Now, I'm going to say these, but I want you to understand that they're, they're synonymous to this is God's word, this is his revelation. He'll mention law, testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, ordinances, word, and promise. When you hear that one, law, by the way, uh, I, I want you to understand it's not saying speed limit, tax code, it's not that law, it's the word Torah. And with a Hebrew mind here, and I want us to hear when you read this psalm and you see law is, is teaching. This is, these are the directions, the directives, the teaching of God's word, you see. Hear that when you hear this phrase, this word law. Each of these words has a little subtle nuance I mean, we're, we're not here to take that apart. That's not even the intent of the poet, it's poetic language. It's to step back and having read all 176 verses to step back and go, he just said the same thing 176 different ways. He used at least eight different words to say, this is God's comprehensive, full revelation of himself. That's the intent of the psalm. Well, we're not going to read the whole psalm. I'm going to grab some sections, some verses that will move us through it. But I want you to keep in mind, we're, ask, we're answering the question, what's going on in a person's head, in a person's heart, and through a person's life, their hands, when they come to this word and they come to it? in the way that the word itself describes itself. Are you with me? That's what we're answering. So let's start with the head. There's something he knows. There's something in his mind. I'm gonna move quickly through these so you have to flip in your Bibles, but look at verse, start with verse 43. He writes, and do not take the word of truth utterly out of my mouth. Look at way go all the way through it to 142. Go all the way to 142. And he sings, your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness and your law is truth. Look at verse 151, it'll just be to your right. You are near, O Lord, and your commandments are truth. And then finally, verse 160, one of my favorite in the whole passage. The sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. The Holman Christian Standard Translation says it this way, the in, verse 160, the entirety of your word is truth and all your judgments endure forever. The New Living Translation, uh, the very essence of your words is truth 
and your just regulations will stand forever. How about the message paraphrase of this passage, verse 160? Your words all add up to the sum total truth. Your righteous decisions are eternal. What does the psalmist know? I mean, there's, there's no intellectual component to this. He's got it in his mind. He's convinced that God's word, every word, all the words in their totality are truth. They're true. Say it this way. It's true in all it says at all times and forever. William Barclay adds a nuance to this, I think is helpful. He says, it is true, speaking of the word, it is true not just as a philosophical proposition taken in isolation, such as Pilate hoped to hear from Jesus's lips. Remember, that was a philosophical, what is truth? You know, it's not just this philosophical statement. It's true also in the afflictions one meets in living one's life or to put it another way, God's word is true, not just as truth in itself, but it is true for this world as we know it, with all its dangers and problems and wickedness, end quote. What's Barclay saying? He's saying, it is true and thus trustworthy. You know, the psalmist will say it's faithful. We get the same idea. It's trustworthy. And the Hebrew mind, the idea goes to this. You can lean on it. It won't give way. It'll hold you in the difficulties and hardships and challenges of life. I think this is a bit of a challenge for us because <clears throat> I'm gonna say it this way. We have become a wiki world. You know what I mean when I say that? We're a wiki people. What do I mean? What, what do I do it? You know, what do you do sometimes? You need to know something. You Google it, you wiki it, whatever. You end up in Wikipedia, wiki how, wiki this, wiki that, right? And, 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 and all those things, there's some really good stuff. I mean, it's true, you know, you, you want to know something, you get to the wiki site. But what, what's true about that is this. Uh, Wikipedia is the collective knowledge of a million people on the planet. It's our best thinking on something. And I'm not saying it's not true, but it's, can I, I'm gonna say, it's not utterly trustworthy, you see. The other thing about Wikipedia that's kind of crazy is it actually gets truer with time. More editors come in. That's wrong, gotta fix that. The psalmist says, God's word has always been true. It's true now. It's true forever. No editors needed, uh, no error. It's trustworthy 100% of the time. Now, now think about this. You name me. Name me a book. Name me a person. Name me an expert. Name me something that is utterly, purely, truly, 100% true and trustworthy then, now, and forever. There isn't anything. 
you do know you can't trust me. You can't even trust 100% what I'm saying. You can't trust me. You can't trust your doctor. You can't, you know what I mean by this. You can't trust your lawyer ultimately. Is there any place we can go and rest and go, it's always true, it always will be true? Yes, but there's only one place. I mean, go in every Christian bookstore in the world and every book in there is not trustworthy as good as they are, except one, just one. And the psalmist was convinced the sum, the totality, the wholeness of your word is truth. My son is a freshman at the University of Tennessee and uh, he has, uh, he's had a really tough um, fall. And it has to do with, uh, he, you know, he, when, he got to UT, when he got to college, he really, and he wouldn't mind me saying this, but he, 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 got, he decided he's really gonna follow Christ. Um, he's kinda, he was, but he was on a different trajectory. So he's get college, I'm gonna follow Christ. And I'm not going to go into all the details on this, but, but he has made some really good choices. But it is costing him. It is costing him dearly. I don't want to go into too many details because I'll fall apart thinking about it. But he's making some good choices. He, he called, texted me yesterday and said, can I call you? And he, he said, I got to bounce something off of you because some guys are saying some stuff to him. It's not, just, it's not true, it's not right. And I'm trying, to feed, I'm trying to feed some truth into him, going, darn, this is true, this is right. But I wrote him back this. I wanted to read this to you. I said, I'm so sorry, and I get it. He's just in a tough place. I wish I could remove the hurt, confusion, loss, sadness, anger, fear, pain of this, but I can't. It is the path of spiritual growth, character deepening, soul shaping. While this process is lifelong, the intensity of it that you are living right now will not last. I guarantee that. These crucible times come and go. Does not make where you are walking any easier. I know that. And then I end in this way. And yeah, I'm in the middle of even preparing this, but I said, my heart is so heavy for you. And my hope is so secure because God's word is true. Always has been always will be, I'm betting my life on it. And I'll say that to you. I'm betting betting my life on it, that it's true and it's trustworthy. It always has been. It is right now and it will be forever. Now, the psalmist has this in his head. But what is going on in his heart? What's being produced there within him in his emotional world? Again, uh, go into Psalm 119. Start at the front end of Psalm 119. I'm gonna move through some verses very quickly with you, but I want this to wash over you like waves in a sense. Verse 20, my soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances, 
all at all times. Verse 24, your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. Verse 40, behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. 47, I shall delight in your commandments, which I love. Verse 54, your statutes are my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. Verse 77, may your compassion come to me that I may live for your law is my delight. Verse 82, my eyes fail with longing for your word while I say, when will you comfort me? Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Verse 111, I have inherited your testimonies forever and they are the joy of my heart. Verse 123, my eyes fail with longing for your salvation and your righteous word. Verse 127, therefore I love your commandments above gold. Yes, above fine gold. Verse 139, my zeal has consumed me because my adversaries have forgotten your words. Verse 140, your word is very true, therefore your servant loves it. Verse 159, consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. Honestly, that's a little too much PDA. It's a little embarrassing. I mean, I'm gonna say it this way because I think it gets at the, 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 the passion in this. He's got a crush on the word of God. I'm telling you, it's, it's that nutty, can't get her out of my head thing going. He can, and he's not embarrassed at all to tell us this. He says, it's my delight. Nine times he says that. Ten times he says, I love it. Now, why is this true? What, 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 what's going on that this happens in him? The word of God is inseparable from the presence of God and the work of God. The word of God, you see. He comes to the word of God and who, what does he find? Ink on a page? He finds God, the presence of God revealed through his word. Y'all, our souls do not long for a text. Oh, I want to text one day. Our souls long for a relationship. Our souls long for love. Our souls long to be loved and in a love relationship that is unconditional and forever. We were made for it, you see. And so he comes to the word because in coming to the word, what's he, what's he coming to? Text? No, he's coming to God himself. Go back to chapter, or go back to verse two. I mean, verse, uh, yeah, verse two. He says, how blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek, what's the next word? Him, you see, who seek 
him. Verse 10, 57, 62, 58 says the same things. I've come to your word. I've come to you, to you, to you, oh God. Derek Kidner says this so clearly. He says it's on account of God's, it's on account, it is on God's account that we love the words that reveal him. We're coming to God, you see. Well, the psalmist knows in his head, it's true and trustworthy. He is feeling, he is emoting in his heart delight and love. What about his hands? What about, what about his doing, his living, his choosing? Well, rather than read back through passages for time's sake, let me just summarize some of the things that he does. Okay? He believes this, feels this, it's in his heart, he lives it. What does he do? He gives thanks, he keeps the statutes, he walks in God's ways, he seeks God, he treasures the word, he tells of God's promises, he rejoices, he meditates, delights, observes, clings to the testimonies. I mean, I'm just up through verse 31. There's 176 of these. He does a lot. <laughs> he does a lot. If you're on the front end of the psalm, look at verse 4. Notice in the very beginning, he says, you have ordained, that is, you've commanded your precepts that we should keep them diligently. Let's not shy away from this. He gives us his precepts that we would keep them. And, and, and I, want you to, I want you to hear this in New Testament terms. Faith without works is dead. That's what he's, you see, genuine biblical faith will express itself. It never just resides in the mind and the heart. It never just stings out in there and just ruminates. I think the stair will hold me. I have faith it'll hold me. I'm, I'm on it. It's holding. You see, biblical faith always works, expresses itself. And that's what he's expressing here. So we have the word of God that comes in our mind, explodes in our hearts, and we live it, we choose. We, do, we obey it. But I want you to catch the, 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 the attitude, uh, the, the aroma that's kind of mulling around in his soul, the motivation deep down as he obeys. And I want you to hear it. It's, it's, I think it's best in the fifth stanza, verses 33 through 40. I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but I want you to listen to the verbs. He's actually asking, okay, he's asking God to do something. Now watch what he, how, how he says this. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. I love this phrase and this next one he repeats throughout the Psalm. Lord, make me walk in the path of your commandments for I delight in it. Incline my heart to hear your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. What, what he's asking God to do, and you're gonna have to stick with me and think this through. He asked God, he says, God, would you help me do the very thing you're commanding me to do? Your word says to do this. I can't do it, so you're gonna have to do it in me. You're gonna have to do through me that which you command me to do. It's Augustine's famous line when he said, grant what thou commandest and command what thou dost desire. 
He's depending on God to enable him to depend on God. I don't know how else to say it. I hope I'm not confusing you. God, I'm depending on you to enable me to depend on you and to do what you do through me. Read through the psalm and you'll see him at so many places. He'll say, Lord, you need to make me like you say I need to be. And is this not the gospel? Isn't this the gospel? The gospel is not do this, do this, do this, and you'll be lovable. If you'll do this, do this, do this, then you're in. No, no. What is the gospel? God has done this. God has done it all. (laughs) Believe it. From Genesis to Revelation, this book, you see, if we want to come to this book, even if we think it's true and we want it to explode our hearts with delight, I love it. You know, it only happens in this way. Not when you come to this book and go, okay, let me read everything I need to do so God loves me. No, no, no. See, from Genesis to Revelation, what is the Bible? It's the story of how much God loves you, how far he's gonna go to ensure that he brings you to himself. It's not... I gotta do all this so I can get to him. Is everybody with me on this? The gospel is what God has done. And when it unlocks in our minds that I come to this word and it's telling me not, you know, I gotta do all this to be loved by God, but God, you did all that to save me. I love it. Because it's about your love for me and all you've done for me to bring me to yourself forever. What's in the head, the heart, and the hands of the person who comes to see this word as the word sees itself where there's this unshakable confidence that it's true. It's trustworthy. And there is this delight that stirs in the heart because the heart has found, can I say it this way? The heart has found the love that it was made for. And there's this humble, dependent obedience. I'm not gonna back away at all from, the Bible says that we do it. That's the truth, it's for our good. But we don't do it to be loved, we don't do it to earn anything, we do it out of gratitude for all he's done for us. In the 1989 movie, Field of Dreams, I think many of us, if not most, would kind of, kind of run our minds back there. Kevin Costner plays a farmer, right? And he's got that cornfield. He cuts all the corn down, even though he needs the corn to pay the bills. He cuts the corn down because he hears this voice. And for those of us who've seen it, I, you just never forget that phrase. I want you to watch this one more time.
What was that? What was what? That voice just now. What was it? Now, I know this is a little corny, but it's just just want you to have this in your mind. The psalmist is whispering, if you read it, he will come. Lord, are you serious? Yes, I'm very serious. The psalmist says, If you read it, he will come. You know, for for Ray Kinsella, it was ultimately, you know, he thought it was the Black Sox incident and seven players could come back and play. It was actually about his dad, wasn't it? You remember that? It was about his dad, a story of redemption. If you read it, he will come. Because you cannot separate the word of God from the presence of God in the work of God. I'm very serious when I say if you read it with a heart that is teachable, humble, with a a posture that's, Lord, you may tell me to do something, you're going to have to enable me to do it, but I'm going to do whatever you tell. If you read it, With that heart, you will be changed. Read Psalm 119. It takes 15 minutes. I'm not going to get legalistic on you. Go, everybody read it every day for the next 30. No, but if you'll read it, and you'll read it, and you'll read it, and you read it again, humbly, Teachably dependent. Mm. God in his grace will begin to convince you it's true. And your heart, even though some of you go, you know, I'm just not an emotional person. I don't do PDA. You know, I'm not going to say anything. Mm-mm. You'll feel it. And you'll live it. Dependent upon him and the power of the spirit, but he'll live that life through you. So what? I want you to take 30 seconds. I want to pause. Lord, what do we do with this truth now? What do I do? do? What do you call me to believe, trust? Would you take 30 seconds? Just close your eyes and trust the Holy Spirit to teach and instruct and guide you.
Let's stand together. I'm going to send you out with benediction, just as Rob did last week. And you know, we've got this benediction where we're reading the first two questions of the Westminster Catechism of Faith. And I realize you know, we don't do this often. We might feel a little awkward for us, but chosen it very specifically because this, these two questions remind us of this, y'all. We were made to be satisfied. We were. We're only satisfied in God. And that's what the first question talks about, glorify and enjoy him. What's the only way we glorify and enjoy him? Through the word. When he mentions this word rule, you know, again, don't hear like law, don't hear like rule. What's a rule? The shortest distance between two points, straight line. It's, it's, here's, and, and, and then the only direction we have to glorify and enjoy him, the only path is the word. So we'll read this, and, and again, I hope it kind of gets in our psyche and in our hearts as we go through the series. We may not do it every time, but I'm gonna encourage you to read it. I know it's a little, it's new to us, but if I could say this, to the level you believe it, express it. I'll read the question you answer together in unison. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God, enjoy him forever. What rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. The word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify. And Father, we would pray that by your Holy Spirit in us, we would come to see your word as your word sees itself and find our satisfaction in you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.